with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37. We have resumed our study, uh, studies in the book of Genesis after looking at chapters 1 through 11 several years ago. And, um, and then uh, chapter 12 through 35, 36, the lives of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, we are looking at the life of Joseph, and that's a helpful way of uh, thinking of the book of Genesis in terms of an outline of the book to divide it into those sections, uh, three main sections in the book of Genesis. Uh, tonight we are looking at chapter 37, verses 12 through 36. We'll read uh, the first few verses, 12 through 17, and then I will pray and we'll pick up our study and proceed through the remainder of the chapter. So hear the word of God from Genesis 37, verse 12. Now his brothers went, that is Joseph's brothers, went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? Seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They've gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Lord, your word is truth, and as we turn our attention to it tonight, we pray that you would sanctify us by your truth. Father, we pray that in this late hour of the day, you would give us clear minds and hungry hearts for your word. Instruct us by it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The story of Joseph is the story of God's providence, God's sovereignty at work in the world. In the abstract... Uh, we speak of the doctrine of God's providence, and it's reassuring, it's comforting to know that God is in charge, to know that God uh, has decreed the end from the beginning, to know that uh, God is ruling over everything that happens in the abstract. But then in real life, it sometimes seems a little bit messy, because things happen that challenge that maybe even strain our confidence that God is in control, that God is in control for our good. Ask people in Enterprise, Alabama. Ask people in America's Georgia. Sometimes our confidence in God's providence can be tested. And yet, that is the arena in which a real and vital and robust doctrine of providence is worked out and eventually strengthened, not just as an abstract concept, but as a reality in our lives. That was certainly true in Joseph's life. I think this being the primary case study, if you will, in providence, uh, is wonderful for that reason, uh, perhaps equaled and maybe surpassed only by the story of Job, in showing that God's providence is seen in what we would consider to be the calamities, that God's providence is seen in those things that, at least for the moment, are inexplicable. What is God up to? How can God possibly bring good out of this? And yet we learn from Joseph 
that he does. Providence applies, providence is lived out in the mess of life, in the afflictions of this world. We saw that last week as we looked at the first part of chapter 37 at Joseph's family. We saw a situation where the father showed favoritism to one of his sons, and not just maybe in the inclinations of his heart, but in a very overt, we might say almost in-your-face way, at least as far as Joseph's older brothers were concerned. Uh, we see a family in chapter 37 where the, uh, the young brother Joseph uh, is at best naive, as he makes known the dreams that he's had about his brothers, and then his brothers and father and mother bowing down to him, at best naive, reporting on these dreams he's had, at worst uh, being a thorn in their side on purpose. Couldn't imagine a younger brother doing that to his older siblings, but uh, that could be the motive. And we looked at how he related the dream in a, in a rather pompous way, the behold, you'll recall, behold and behold and behold, And his brothers hated him all the more with each successive behold. We saw a family where uh, the relationship between the brothers among the brothers, at least among the older ones toward this particular brother, was characterized not by uh, affection, uh, not even affection expressed in a a teasing, tormenting sort of way, but uh, by raw hatred. They hated him. They truly hated him. In fact, three times it's said in the passage we looked at last week, verses 1 through 11, that they hated Joseph. They hated him all the more. They hated him all the more. That was the family situation. Not exactly promising soil for a wonderful work of God's providence, and yet that's where it began. Well, this evening we take up the remainder of the chapter, verses 12 through 36, and we begin with Joseph's, or Jacob's instruction to Joseph to go and check on his brothers to see how they're doing. Now, there's something you need to know about this. This was not a case where the father said, well, Joseph, go out and see how your brothers are doing. They're out shepherding the flock. And so Joseph went out the back door. He crossed the street, went into a neighboring field to see how his brothers were doing. In fact, we're given some geographical points of reference here. Uh, the brothers went to shepherd their father's flock near Shechem. And we're told in verse 14, he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. That's a distance of about close to 50 miles. This was not uh, a five-minute walk out to the field to see how the brothers were doing. This was a long-distance journey. And, in fact, we're told that when he does uh, get to Shechem, he looks around for his brothers. It's a wonderful picture. Uh, A man found him wandering in the fields, uh, diligently trying to find his brothers. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm looking for my brothers, he said. Tell me where they are pasturing the flock. The man knew of them, or perhaps knew them, said they've gone away. I've heard them say, let's go to Dothan, which is almost another 40, uh, not 40, 14 miles, just short of 14 miles to the north. So Joseph was a long way from home going to check on his brothers, which makes you wonder what Jacob was thinking. Was he blind to the tension in his own home? Was he ignorant of the murderous hatred that his older sons had for their younger brother? That he would send him off? Was he 
just completely unaware of what uh, an annoyance, what a brat Joseph was uh, to his brothers, perhaps intentionally, as he rubbed in their faces his favored son status. We don't know. It doesn't say. It is somewhat amazing, though, that uh, Israel, as he's called here, would, uh, would say to Joseph, Are not your brothers pastoring the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. Like tossing a lamb into a lion's den. Joseph said, Here I am. You get the idea, he really was pompous. That's, that's formal acceptance of a call. Remember Genesis chapter 22, when the Lord comes to Abraham... After these things, God tested Abraham, said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. A formal response to a call. Joseph, go check on your brothers. Here am I, Dad. Send me. Well, regardless, what else we say? Uh, but there may be more to it than, than the, the words merely say. And so he, did, he took off and uh, went to Shechem and eventually made his way to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and he found them. At Dothan, and that really just begins to set the scene for what happens. Uh, they're plotting. Verse eighteen: They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. No sooner did they see him on the way, no sooner did they recognize that they have him uh, a very long way from home, out of their father's sight with no way of their father knowing what would happen, then they immediately begin to conspire to put him to death. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer, literally master or lord of dreams, probably said somewhat sarcastically. Uh, the word there is Baal, master, lord uh, of dreams. Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him. And throw him into one of the pits. There were all kinds of pits they used in that day. Uh, this one, as it turns out, was a cistern. It was a place for collecting water. They could be as deep as 15, 16 feet, uh, maybe 10 feet wide. They tended to be somewhat pear-shaped, narrower, and then would widen on the interior. Pits were used for different things, uh, storing food, storing grain, um, or collecting water, as was the case with this one. Uh, Joseph wouldn't be the first person, or the last person, rather, in Scripture to be tossed into a pit. You remember Jeremiah, the prophet, uh, spent some time in a pit also. Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into the, one of the pits. And we'll say a fierce animal has devoured him. They're concocting a lie here, covering themselves. And we will see what becomes of his dreams. Well, apparently the dreams continued to bother them. They had dwelt on this. The dreams were quite the sore point uh, as far as their brother was concerned. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams, that we'll be bowing down to him. And in verse 21, uh, when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. Reuben was the oldest. Perhaps as the oldest, uh, he felt some responsibility uh, for Joseph. Uh, maybe he didn't share quite the same uh, degree of hatred that some of the other middle brothers felt toward their younger brother. Uh, so it's hard to know what was going on in his mind, but certainly he, he tempers their murderous intent. And uh, Reuben said to them, shed no blood. 
cast him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. Why? It's explained here that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So Reuben at least had some concern for the well-being of uh, Joseph. Maybe he didn't like him, but he certainly didn't think murdering him was quite the thing to do. He recognized they would have to explain to their father somehow what had happened to him, uh, that we might restore him to his father. And so when Jacob came, verse 23, they stripped him of his robe. Which robe? Ah, the robe of many colors that he wore. Do you detect echoes here of the first part of the chapter? The dreams, sore point. We'll see what becomes of this dreamer. They tear this robe off of him, which their hands had probably been longing to do for some time. They stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors, in case you missed the connection there. And they took him and cast him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So he had a good fall, hit the bottom of the pit, and there he was. Now, the next verse may be the most illuminating of all. Then they sat down to eat. Nothing like roughing up your brother to work up an appetite, huh? Hey, what's going on while they're eating? Levi, Judah, come get me. Why'd you throw me in this pit? Hey, guys, what are you doing? Don't leave me down here. What'd you throw me down here for? As they ate their lunch. Then they sat down to eat. And they hadn't been eating very long, apparently, when they looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him. Too late for that, actually. For he is our brother, our own flesh. Oh, how touching. Brotherly affection comes through at last. Uh, And, yeah, he did have a point. Maybe they were having second thoughts about murdering Joseph. Nuisance though he was, obnoxious though he may be, killing him might might not quite be the thing to do. And besides, if they killed him, that would be the end of that. Uh, They'd still have to explain to their father either way, and at least by selling him, they could get some money out of him. He might, might prove to be worth something after all. And his brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders, or then Midianite traders passed by. The Ishmaelites was kind of a generic catchword for any number of tribes. Probably that was referring to this particular group of Midianites. They drew Joseph up, pulled him out of the pit, lifted him up out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, which was pretty much the going price of a slave, a male uh, slave, able-bodied male slave in that day. And they took Joseph to Egypt where there was a thriving uh, slave trade, uh, slaves formed a, a significant uh, substrata in, in Egyptian society. Um, and so they figured, well, they can take him down to the Nile and uh, get, a, get a good price for him, maybe double what they paid for Joseph there in, uh, in metropolitan Egypt with the slave trade. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, now, where was Reuben? 
Well, apparently he'd gone back to see what the sheep were doing. Uh, we don't know. He, he left. Evidently he was not around for this part of the discussion because he's quite uh, confused as to what happened. He saw that Joseph was not in the pit. He tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone. Literally, the boy is not. Perhaps he was concerned they actually had followed through on plan number one. And I, where shall I go? Which probably has reference to how can I go back to my father's home? He being the firstborn, again, not only had the place of privilege, but also the primary place of responsibility. And you sense his anguish here as the thought goes, okay, how am I going to return to my father's home? However, that's all that's said of Reuben's uh, grief here or concern. Apparently, they filled him in on what happened because Reuben participates in the cover-up. Verse 31, then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. Then they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. We found this. This we found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. Now granted, uh, for them, Joseph was a half-brother. But they don't even use his name here. They are presenting to his father a robe, which they describe as this at first. I say, this we found. Uh, is it your son's? They won't even name him. Rather impersonal. Knowing what this would do to their father. Verse 33, he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his garments which is an expression of grief, particularly in bereavement, and put sackcloth on his loins, which is usually made out of camel hair, rough, uncomfortable material, similar to putting on burlap or something like that today, uh, designed to be uncomfortable as an expression of, of grief, of loss, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him. The daughters, we could understand, All his sons rose up to comfort him? Think about it. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And so the sons maintain their scheme. They break their father's heart. And they even go through the motions of trying to console him, comfort him on the loss of his son. Does God rule? Maybe Jacob didn't feel much like it at that time. And you and I have an added perspective, not only of Jacob's grief in, in the genuinely perceived loss of his son, but the wickedness of Joseph's older brothers. But that's not the end. We come to verse 36. Meanwhile, you see the, sh- the scene change. You know, if this was a movie, it would change. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Verse 35 is pretty dark. But there's just the slightest ray of hope in verse 36. Because we learn 
that Joseph is not going to be out somewhere laboring away as a common slave, as providence would have it. He was purchased to work in the household of one of Pharaoh's officers. When I read that verse, and the verse has the same tone to me at the end of Ruth chapter 1, you'll remember uh, in Ruth, with the with Ruth's loss of her husband and the loss of uh, their sons, Malin and Killian, and she's left with her two daughters-in-law, uh, Ruth and Orpah, um, she tells them, well, you know, your husbands, my sons, are, are, are gone. Um, you, you can certainly go your way. Don't feel like you have to stay with me. And Orpah does, but Ruth insists on staying with Naomi. And uh, verse 19, Ruth 1, 19, the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And they said, is this Naomi? Uh, which means something like pleasant, call me Myra, which means bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Again, a very dark situation. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest which was a time of prosperity, which was a time of uh, celebration, a time of hope. And the chapter ends on something of an upturn. Well, that's how this chapter ends. Meanwhile, uh, while all of the grieving was going on in Jacob's house, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now, as we look at this chapter, uh, we we looked last week at at a very scary home situation And this week, we looked at an absolutely dastardly act of wickedness. The staggering thing is that that act of wickedness in God's providence saved their lives. Because as you know, it was through Joseph's going down into Egypt and all that happened there that they were able to be prepared when the famine, the seven years of famine came. And you know how the brothers came and they bought grain and were provided for. But you see, it was their very, very wicked, very evil act that brought Joseph into Egypt and that led Joseph to become second only to Pharaoh in Egypt and through which God had, by the dreams, allowed them to be provided for in times of famine. You see, it's a staggering thing. And as Joseph later describes, this very act of his brothers, and really this is the low point of the story, their their evil uh, deed against him, which obviously bothered their conscience, we learn later as they thought about it and dwelt on it. But it was this very evil act of which Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And make no mistake about it, they meant it for evil. They didn't say, well, you know, God's decree was that it should work out this way, so come on guys, we need to go do this. No, they hated their brother. They wanted him dead. They wanted to be rid of him. They wanted to hear the last of his dreams. They wanted to see the last of that coat. They were tired of it. They were fed up with it. Fed up with him, fed up with the whole thing. And they got rid of him. Didn't kill him, but they did get rid of him. They sold him in slavery, which could be consigning him to a life of brutal treatment, if not death. And yet Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It doesn't say God brought good out of it. That's the mystery here. God didn't just come out with plan B. This was plan A. 
That's the mystery of our sin. That even our sinful acts, even evil acts that we do, God not only makes the best of, but has purpose to work through to bring about good. But of course, Joseph in that regard is only a shadow, isn't he? Because there were murderous and evil men who hated Jesus. And they saw to it that he was executed in the most unjust way. And they hated him, and they put him to death. And Peter, much as Joseph comments on that in Genesis chapter 50, Peter's comment in Acts chapter 2 is this, verse 23, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And, and in other places, the same, the same message. Their evil acts, at least for some of them, their hatred of Jesus, their calling for his death, their putting him to death, was the very act by which they gained their eternal salvation. Not all of them, but those who later believed. By their very wicked act in putting to death the only sinless, the only innocent man who ever lived, after Adam, was the very act by which their eternal salvation was gained. You see, that's the mystery of God's providence. Yes, God can work through the beautiful things of life, but God also purposes to work through the ugly things of life. As a professor in seminary of mine once said, God uses sin sinlessly. God was not tainted at all with the evil acts of Joseph's brothers, and yet that was God's ordained instrument to save their lives. God was not at all tainted with the wicked intent of those who crucified Jesus. But God had purposed that their hatred of him, their rejection of him, would be the very means by which their eternal salvation and all who believe in him would be gained. See, God does rule even in and through the ugliest, the most wicked, the most vile things of life and uses them for his glory and for the good of his people. And so as we worship God for his providence, we need to have a biblical view of it. Sometimes it can be messy. Joseph didn't know what was going on at the time. And we may not either, as God is dealing with our our lives and working in us, and our own sin, and the sin of others against us. But know this. We may mean it for evil. um, Other men may mean it for evil. But God means it. Lord, we are amazed that you are able to so work as to use the evil intents of selfish fallen men and women to accomplish your good and sinless and perfect purposes. Father, we worship you. We praise you. And we are encouraged, Lord, in the ups and downs of our own lives that you are a God who is sovereign, that you are the God of providence. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.